Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, Agatha Christie and Arthur Conan Doyle meet Knives Out and the Thursday Murder Club in this fiendishly clever blend of classic and modern murder mystery, Benjamin Stevenson's Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. Stevenson was interviewed about his new novel by the Readings Programming Manager, Christine Gordon. Here's Chris. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us. My name is Chris Gordon. I look after some of the programs that happen at Readings. And today I am delighted to be chatting, to be sharing my morning coffee with the one and only Benjamin Stevenson. Now, I want to read you a little bit about Benjamin Stevenson because he's no ordinary walk-by-the-day-and-night type of author. This is a bloke that is involved very heavily in the book world, but he's also an award-winning stand-up comedian. His very first novel, Greenlight, was shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award for the Best Debut Crime Fiction. His second novel, Either Side of Midnight, was shortlisted for the Thriller Writers Award for Best Original Paperback. He has done sold-out shows in Melbourne, International Comedy Festival. He has been to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and he's appeared on pretty much all commercial TV. He's worked for many publishing houses and he currently works for Curtis Brown Australia. Benjamin, hello and thank you for joining us on the Readings Podcast. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be here. Everyone in my family has killed someone is one of the most bonkers, meta murder novels that I've ever come across. It's quirky, sort of mixed in with a how-to-write guide alongside a complicated, very humorous at times, crime novel. Where did this idea come from and how would you describe it to anyone that hasn't read this book? Just an easy question to to start. Um, (laughs) Well, we're describing it as sort of the film Knives Out meets Richard Osman and in using those those comparisons I think the tone of it is that it is a good crime and mystery novel but it's an affectionate one it's a charming one it's it's one that isn't afraid to use humor or or break some rules or be inventive as well so it's at the same time it's the crime novels that you love and have read before and it's also the crime novels that you've never read before. And I think that finding the zone between those two is a really uh, fun way to satisfy classic crime readers and, and new readers alike who might not read crime but might be pulled in by something a bit different. In some ways this is a novel within a novel. There's a whole sort of meta-universe going on in the sense that we never lose track that this is a novel. We never lose track that this is a devised plot. Yeah, well, the idea, it came from a lot of different places. But to be honest, the idea came from the fact that this book, I wanted to put every idea I'd ever had into it. And not to get too much into the background of publishing, but this is my third novel. You know, I'd written some some books that had done okay, but maybe hadn't set the world on fire. And I could have written another noir crime novel, which I was very comfortable doing, or I had the opportunity to write my next book, whatever I wanted it to be, and just go for it. And I feel like 
when I was sitting down to plot it out and I was choosing between doing another noir crime novel or or doing something more inventive, I was like, I will regret this if I don't get this chance again. So the idea came from the fact that if I didn't write another book, which I'm not saying wouldn't have happened because I probably would have, but the idea came from if I didn't, what would I regret leaving out? And that's where all of these ideas that I'd had throughout the course of both my comedy and my crime writing career that I'd always thought wouldn't really fit in a book, I thought, I'm going to do them. I'd had that idea of spoiling the entire novel in the opening chapter and giving away the page number. I had that 10 years ago. And I just sat on it because I thought it's not really something that would go into a book. And then in terms of the idea of the, the plot structure itself, you know, I came up with the title first because I wanted a book in which I could deliver many mysteries at the same time. And so I thought that if there's a family of killers and what you do is you learn about each of the seven characters, you learn about who they've killed, but there's also the only one of them is a murderer, but all of them are killers. So how does that deliver in a crime novel? It's really exciting to me is that I could do seven mysteries at the same time instead of just one. And then in terms of the actual plot idea, you know, that's very much an affectionate nod to the golden age you know there's a lot of and then there were none in there and sort of the trapped hotel setting and then I wanted to tribute the golden age without mimicking it and the way to do that is to be self-reflexive and the way to do that is to write a novel in first person and the way to do that is to make the novel a writer but I hate novels with writers as lead characters so I decided to make him a bad writer which is my excuse if anyone ever criticises the writing. I'm like, well, the narrator is a bad writer, so that's part of it. But, yeah, so all of that sort of combined in itself to create what the book was. But really I just wanted to have fun. I was writing it during COVID. I didn't want to sort of have just people meeting grisly ends without a bit of joy to it, so I wanted to make it as fun as possible. Do you feel like when you were writing this book, and you were allowing yourself to have this freedom to bring in all these ideas that you'd been thinking about for 10 years. Were you at times there with your sort of stand-up comedy head on rather than your author head? Well, yeah, comedy is all about surprise. So it's all about tension and then subverting expectations in order to create surprise, which then triggers either a laugh or a groan. Some comedians will go for one over the other. And crime running is much the same. And I definitely did put my comedy head on while I was writing because I wanted a way in which to deliver the surprise in a way that would trigger the response, which in a crime novel is the whoa sort of response instead of laughter. But very much, you know, I have to take the comedy brain off because it is not a comedy novel. It's a crime novel with humour in it. And if you tip it, if you tip it over, then you go into farce and then you go into sort of a bit zany. Now, I was very careful because I never wanted to cross that line. And so I really love it when people say that the book is hilarious and I equally love it when people say that the book is a really good mystery. I really wanted to have both of those. So it was about which hat I'm wearing at whichever time, which was most important. Because I choose to tell you so much, and I've never done magic, but it's more like magic tricks, you know, where, where Penn and Teller, they explain how they're doing the trick while they're doing it. And you're like, oh, that's clever. And then they've actually done a different trick in the background. And that's sort of how I more modelled delivering this one rather than the structure of sort of stand-up comedy. 
I love that you talk about the, the mystery of magic shows when you were just describing it then because it did make me think about how your writing is, in fact, a performance in this particular book. Now, I know that in your previous novels it wasn't, but there's always this very conscious air in the writing of this incredibly fun, I found it hilarious, but also a riveting murder mystery. Everyone in my family has killed someone. I found that, that we were never too far away from the performance element of it all, right down to the setting. And I think the performance of it, the more I can draw your attention to the fact that it is a book and there's multiple points in it where Ernest, the narrator, says, I'm just reminding you that you still have 150 pages to go in the book that this guy is not the murderer because there's too long left. This would be a lame twist. And he says that in the book. The dear reader moments, Benjamin, I thought that were fantastic. And at different times in your novel you say, hey, now remember, on page 67 I did mention this. Well, you know, and as you say about the performative of the setting, like, you know, they're all very aware in the book. They're aware that it's ridiculous that their phones don't work. They're like, what? Of course there's a storm coming in, you know. And at the end, you know, one character says to another when they're about to solve the mystery, well, we better solve it in the library because that would be a wasted opportunity. So drawing attention to all of those tenets of crime fiction, of golden age crime fiction specifically, it allows me to sort of, point out things that I want you to see and cover up things that I don't want you to see. And it brings the reader into the game. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote this as well is because modern psychological thrillers are more about how much the author can trick the reader and a a lot of them come down to that, which is very clever and I I love it when you feel like, whoa, you've got the wool pulled over your eyes. But Golden Age Crime, which is what this sort of modelled off Christie's suggestions, It's more about the reader playing along with the author rather than being played by the author. And so I really wanted to bring people into that puzzle so that they can feel clever while solving it. And, you know, you're supposed to solve part of it. You're not supposed to not know anything that's going on. Otherwise, you don't feel good. A literal Cluedo game in that sense, right down to the the setting of the plot taking place in a huge sort of mansion in, in, in a lodge. Let's just talk about that performance just for a little longer because I do want to give you the opportunity to show off the fact that this book has been sold already. It's going to be something that we can visually see. Can you speak of that? My family really keep me grounded because I told them I'd sold it to HBO and one of my uncles said, is that an architecture company? And I was like, no. So they're making a, a television series out of it, which is very exciting and It's very exciting to sort of see and have those early conversations about how this sort of self-reflexive narrator may come to life on the screen. You know, he he could be reasonably pulled back for the the theatrical delivery or they could go whole hog and go zany and, you know, have somebody fast-forwarding and rewinding like the actual on-screen, you know, the way he sort of does in the book. And we're still very much early days, but it's exciting to think about how that will performatively be delivered. But it was interesting having these conversations because it was a very exciting time and we we did get to talk to a lot of people and there was a bit of an auction. A bit of an auction, he says in his laconic Australian way, whatever, a bit of an auction. I think a lot of people connected with the characters in it. You know, there's, there's a really broad range of characters and there's a lot of characters. So there was one thing I heard a lot was that there were a lot of juicy roles that people 
might be interested in. And so that really led it. And then the setting and the, and the story as well behind it. But you never know what would kick something off, but suddenly things changed within 12 hours and then it was all very exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing it on screen. So am I. So am I. I think it's going to make a tremendous short series. When we talk about the characters in the book, I'd like to spend just a little moment talking about Ernest, who's the narrator, and this is where I did find your writing so fun. The fact that he's called Ernest even made me laugh out loud immediately. This is a man that writes books for the internet. He writes how-to books, and he is, in fact, quite quite an earnest sort of affable sort of character. Benjamin, is he based on anyone, i.e. you, that you know or where did this character come from? I would say that Ernest is not like me. I would say that some of his voice in terms of his pithy observations and some of his sort of smart-ass quips are probably more like me. And then personality-wise, I probably more identify with Andy, who's a bit of a dork, and Catherine, who's a hyper-organised pain in the neck. So I'm I'm the annoying characters in that book, Little Shades of Me. But, yeah, Ernest, his, his sort of voice, his sort of inability to take things seriously and and constantly looking for that next thing to niggle at or, or picky thing to say or, or smart aleck comment, I think that does come from me, yeah. In some ways because this novel moves very quickly and you are always aware that you're reading a crime novel. The characters, for me, I found it a little, it took me a little longer to get into perhaps a great feeling of the characters, with the exception of Ernest, who I felt I could be best friends with immediately. I'm interested in the role of the mother. I mean, she sort of comes across initially as this sort of very typical almost mobster type matriarch of the family but as the novel progresses and you only let it out I thought in the last maybe the last quarter was that this was a woman that was was heartbroken by her family and it was only in that wrapping up of the plot that we learnt that this woman had been living with fear and pain her entire life Can you tell me a little bit about that flip around and was it difficult to get the reader in your mind, to get the reader to come along and be sympathetic to all of the characters or any of the characters? Yeah, it was very difficult and particularly with Audrey, the mother, the turn that she has is very important structurally to the book, not just plot-wise. And this is one of the difficulties with the challenge I set of delivering these seven mini-mysteries of each character Mm. is you can't have them all openly on the page from the start because then you can't sort of reveal their mysteries too early. So the book is structured in chapters which are named after each family member. You know, the first chapter is my brother, the next chapter is my sister, the third chapter is my wife, which I then skip and then hold that until much, much later. That's not spoiling anything. But but what you're also doing while delivering those individual chapters is you are providing their alibis for what the major crime is. So structurally, as the book comes to the end, you have several characters who have not had their chapters yet and you know that they're still in the mix for being the main suspect. And so it's which suspects do you knock out early enough and which suspects do you hold back 
And Audrey was one of the suspects that I wanted to hold back, not only because of how she plays into the ending, but also because I thought she's a good suspect. What Ernest learns about family and what family means at the end also really softens how we see her and how he sees her through his eyes, and he only gets that right at the end. We talked about things like a family tree on the inside cover just to sort of let everyone know who everyone was, but unfortunately because a lot of things move around and a few people are sort of divorced and remarried and dead, maybe they're dead at the start of the book, but you don't know they're dead until sort of the middle of the book not in a sixth sense way, just in a sort of chronologically way, it ruined too many surprises. So we did deliberately let some of the characters simmer in that opening bit. But, yeah, it's, it's very, it's, it's tricky. It's the largest cast of characters I've ever written a book with. Normally I have two people sort of teamed up to do the investigating and then a couple of suspects who can come in and out until the grand reveal. But this one has seven characters on the page in every page for the first 200 or so pages but I really enjoyed flipping Audrey and, and and finding her motivations and revealing all of those motivations as well and what it means to Ernest in the same way that Erin his wife I really enjoyed if you haven't read the book you know this isn't a spoiler spoiler but and most people will assume this but I also have a lot of fun what does the word killed mean you know everyone in my family has killed someone it's not a book in which there's seven sections and a murder takes place in every section it's it's about guilt and about responsibility and about what you feel may constitute killing yeah it's not a murder in every chapter yeah so you know I wanted to sort of play with the definition and the words and how the characters may interpret that and so, yeah, I use a lot of that as well in the in the back end as well. But don't don't worry if you're listening. There's a lot of murders. Like, and even though you and I have talked a lot about the humour that's in your book and the sort of rollicking pace of the plot, do also know that there are some very poignant moments in this novel that will make you stop and you will have to spend some time reflecting in your own family. Well, certainly that's what I found as a reader. And I like that. You know, I'd be on this sort of pace of reading with you. You know, you read quickly these type of novels and then all of a sudden there would be a reveal about some heartbreak that had happened or some justification as to why someone was behaving in a certain way. And you would have to just pause and put the book down and, and sort of spend some time looking around because that's what great novels do. They remind you of people that you know or they remind you of your own behaviour. And I do believe that you've written something quite extraordinary here, Benjamin. Now, I just wanted to talk very briefly about the sort of the golden age of detectives, which is something that you talk about quite often in the book. And I know in different interviews you have talked about the, the golden age in itself where uh, there is, I don't know, some stereotypes, there's some rules to follow. I imagine as you were writing a novel like this that your entire writing room must have been filled with sort of butcher paper and yellow post-it notes just to make sure that you were getting all of those Trojans right, I'm Was it like that for you or how did you go about making sure you were following the rules of the golden age and yet keeping on top of every loop that you had created? Well, this will be a really disappointing answer to all the, <laughs> all the writing crafts people out there. Some of my friends have amazing chalkboards. It looks like they're hunting the Zodiac Killer. Some people have 
incredible software apps which they're able to use and they've got all these character cards and plot cards. I put it all in my head until it causes me so much stress that I ring my publisher and say, I'm I'm stuck on a plot point, I need another two months. <laughs> and then I go back and I just sit on it. I do have, I have an Excel spreadsheet which has all the, the clues in it for this book because it's got so many of them and I wanted to make sure they were all ticked off, you know, they all get their answers. And so I do have that Excel spreadsheet. But I look at it less often than I thought that I would when I set it up. But the other thing that I do is when I write, I don't write a full draft and then go back and fix things as and like edit the draft. You know, if I write 50 pages and then I decide something is changing or moving in the plot, I rewrite that 50 pages before I write another word. So at the end of every chapter, the book holds up to the end of that chapter as at the current edit. So then when I do the next chapter, if I change something, and this it can be as small as the character's name or it can be as big as one character's not alive anymore, I don't put a pin in it and sort of use the energy of the momentum of the writing to keep going and then fix it later, which a lot of people do. I'll go back so that I feel like it's at an edited stage before I, I write the next chapter down. But by doing that, it means that it does iron out a lot of those kinks along the way because I'm thinking about them all the time at every point, which means I'm a very slow writer. Some days I write 50 words, you know. I very rarely write 800 to 1,000 words a day. I would say that happens about twice in the course of a novel, and I know that a lot of people, that's sort of their minimum. So that's how I do it because I'm always looking at it. But otherwise it's it's just sits up here. When you're writing something like this that has got so many layers upon it, are you actually hopeless company to everyone else around you because you're so ingrained in your writing? I hope not. <laughs> we all have long, long dark nights of the soul when we're trying to really figure something out and my, and my wife will answer that question better than I can. But I actually really enjoy going out and doing things, especially when I'm stuck and especially when I'm doing a lot of heavy writing. You know, if I schedule it correctly, I can still go out and hang out with friends and stuff. And, and that informs going out and being in the world is, is a lot more helpful to me than sitting at my desk for eight hours smacking my head against it. You know, I'd rather go, you know, even you just go to the pub for a drink and then you see someone you don't know who do something stupid at the bar and you think that it's going in the book. You know, those kind of things and just chatting it through with my brother who I do comedy with or my wife, just actually verbalising it a lot of the times helps me solve some of the plot lines. We have run out of time. I want to let all of our listeners know that everyone in my family has killed someone is one of the most enjoyable, entertaining books that I've read this year. I have gifted this book to my family, to my daughter and to my bloke, and they both have read this in one sitting. On behalf of my family and on behalf of everyone that I know will enjoy this book, thank you for taking some time out today to explain some of your writing process, to explain the reasoning behind this incredible book, and so that we can all live a little in the glory, the HBO glory that is coming your way. Congratulations to you and thank you for joining us on the Readings Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. 
You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you.